Welcome to the Legacy of Our African American Lives podcast, where our stories become oral histories created to uplift, empower, and enrich the next generation. I am Tangela Irby, and I am your host. Today, I am fortunate enough to be here with a good friend of mine, Michelle Blacksmith-Tompkins, and she is a curator of costumes and textiles of the African diaspora. Michelle, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, Tangie. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, I had to have you here. We had so much fun a couple years ago talking about your connection to my family history and what motivated you to learn more about textiles. And so I am so excited to have you here today. So I'm just going to have you start off by telling us, how did you land here? You know, you don't hear of people in this career, um, this field of interest very often. So I want to hear a little bit more about that. And then I want you to tell us a little bit about why all of this is important to us as African-Americans. Okay, so I'm going to go way back to the beginning, back to the elementary school years. There were three things that I loved since a small child. One was reading, two was museum visiting, and three was fashion. I loved all three. You could always find me at the library. I always wanted to go to a museum. If we were visiting a new city, I would beg to please, you know, let's go to the museum that's there. I want to see it. And three, I always wanted to know what someone was wearing and why. And I love to watch my mother and grandmother get dressed. I had five older cousins who were like big sisters and they were fabulous dressers. They were five, eight and 11 years older than me. And I so admired everything that they wore. And this was during the late sixties and early seventies when African fabric was very popular. You know, you saw young black women wearing galas on their heads, young men and young women wearing dashikis. This was the Black Power Movement you know, and the whole love and embrace of, um, of Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And there was a lot of African fabric then. I just loved it. I was absolutely fascinated by it. And when one of my cousins would take me in and make my hair into an Afro or put a gale on me, I was so proud. And then another cousin got married um, at St. Mark's Episcopal Church, but she had an entire African themed wedding. So way before coming to America, the bride, the bridegroom, the bridesmaids, the groomsmen were all dressed in African clothing. It was fabulous. And so that began my love of, of African te textiles, you know, and they always caught my eye. But, you know, it didn't occur to me until much later in life that I could combine those three loves, love of reading, love of museums, and love of clothing into a career. And so when I first got out of college, I went to work for some very high profile magazines. Of course, they were Eurocentric and I love all fashion. So I enjoyed myself. I had a good time. And, um, and as an aside, I did happen to be the assistant to the first Black fashion editor at Vogue. Her name is Margaret Pizant. Um, So that was a big thrill. She took me to the uh, Willie Smith show, right? And I was the only assistant that got sat through, but she was a Black fashion editor and she had a Black fashion assistant. And uh, she really trained me up. Um, she mentored me 
in that early process. But some years later, I wasn't satisfied in that area. And I found out that the Fashion Institute of Technology had a Master's of Arts program in Museum Studies. And they had a costume and textile division uh, for curators. And I thought, that's me. All those things that I've said I've loved all my life, reading, museums, and fashion, all contained in a master's program. So I matriculated and I loved my time there. But what was missing for me was the African diasporic experience. Once again, the program was very Eurocentric. There was some talk about clothing or, or textiles mainly from Africa some but not a lot of talk about um, contemporary African-American designers, not full coursework. So I set about making my own course. And so I went uptown to 125th Street where I knew I could get an education. And all along the street, I would go into shops. I would visit the vendors on the street. These were the years before the Giuliani administration kicked the vendors off of 125th Street. So I would just roam in and out of, you know, past people's tables and purchase things. When I had, you know, a little grad school money, I would ask questions. I met a merchant who was a really kind and knowledgeable man. He had the best cloth because he was from West Africa, but he collected from all over the continent. So he had a wide range of textiles and he would teach me, this is from Nigeria. This is from Mali. This is from Sierra Leone. This is from Senegal, he would tell me. This is from Ghana. You know, and he, this is from Kenya. And then he would tell me if I was collecting why certain cloths were important to have in a collection. This means this. This is made this way. So he would talk to me about technique. And he would talk to me about value. So I called him my outside grad school professor because he taught me, <laughs> he really did teach me everything that, that I know about African textiles. Now, the unfortunate thing, I did internship at the Smithsonian following grad school. And that was during the time when the Juliet Giuliani administration kicked the 125th Street vendors off of 125th Street. When I came back, he wasn't there. A number of the vendors had moved to the Nation of Islam outdoor market on 116th Street, but he, was, he wasn't there. And I never, never saw my grad school professor of African textiles again, unfortunately. And so, you know, I just hope he knows how much he meant to me and how much he taught me. What, what a true, what a true teacher he was. While I was in graduate school, I decided that I would focus my research on African-American clothing during slavery. And in that study, textiles, but also clothing became very important. And so I was looking at clothing and textiles and I was looking at quilts because I was reading the oral histories and the emancipatory narratives of people who were formerly enslaved and what they had to say about clothing. And quilts kept coming up. You know, some of our most revered women in history 
during that period were quilters. Sojourner Truth was a quilter. Harriet Tubman was um, a quilter. Elizabeth Hobbs Keckley was a quilter. So these were women who were freedom fighters, but they were also quilters. And they talked about it or it was written about in their history. I was starting to take a look at the relationship between quilting and African textiles specifically. Well, I was looking for ways in which African-Americans in slavery were able to retain history because we're always taught that our history is lost. But I was pushing back on that a little bit and saying some of our history has been lost, certainly, but not all of it. We are a resilient, resourceful people. And we have been able to maintain a lot of our history. Perhaps you don't know what you're looking at when you see it, so you don't know that it's retained. If you are able to unlock the puzzle pieces or read the signs, you'll recognize that the history is there. And I'll give you an example. Harriet Powers was um, an enslaved woman whose Bible quilt hangs in the Smithsonian Institution. It is an incredible work of art. And it tells the stories of the books of the Bible and biblical stories square by square. And it's done in applique. Not every African tribe or African society does applique. When you look at American quilting, not all American quilts are done by applique. So this is a very specific kind of technique. But Harriet Power's lineage was Benin Fon. And Fon flags are always done with applique. And when you look at her design and her figures, you can see the direct connection between the Benin Fon figures and the figures in her quilt. So that's just one example. Um, another example that I think about, there are many, but I'm just gonna give one more example. And that's the example of the G's Bend quilts. And I know that G's Bend, and especially in recent years, has gotten quite a bit of publicity and rightly so. Um, it's an incredible story and an incredible legacy. And one of the things that is said about G's Bend quilts is that the improvisation, you know, that they're improvised. But I always like to remind people what improvisation means. Improvisation doesn't mean that it's done on the fly. Improvisation doesn't mean that you're making it up as you're going along. Improvisation means that you have mastered the technique to the point that you can be confident in playing outside the lines, right? just like a jazz musician. So there is a, there's a technique and a standard to improvisation. And so no one should think that that um, a G's Ben quilt is an easy thing to achieve. But one of the things that I've seen in a number of G's Ben quilts is the resemblance to strip woven cloth from Ghana. You know, strip woven cloth that we commonly refer to as kente, those strips of cloth that are inches wide and feet long and then sewn together to complete whole cloth and you know we call it kente cloth today but it, traditionally each cloth was known by its purpose its name its family lineage or 
its use and was not called kente. The word kente came much later and stuck, just like Kleenex is stuck for tissues. Kente has stuck for that cloth. But to call a strip woven cloth is a much more accurate term. It, at least it describes the technique. But in a number of G's Ben quilts, you see the reference to strip woven cloth quite clearly, and it is striking. Well, I'm grateful that uh, clothing and textiles of the African diaspora caught my attention at an early age. I hope that you know those of us who are old enough to take a child by the hand to a museum or to a library, or even sit down in front of a computer and um, look at a collection somewhere, will expose our children to all the wonderful things that our ancestors have done. Um, one of the things that my grandmother did for me and my mother did for me was take me to the Newfield Branch Library. That was a regular trip for us. And now we've got a brand new beautiful library that has all kinds of resources. The place where you can go and type in the Smithsonian African Museum and look at their textile collection. Type in the African American Museum. Look at the quilting collection. Look at the clothing collection. There are many places where we can find the things we love, even if we can't get to them immediately. But if if but if there's a field trip, take a field trip. Go. But by all means, what I want our young people to understand is that not only do we have a history and a legacy, it's not lost. And it's not as old as yesterday or the day before. You know, it begins on the African continent and it extends through today in, in a through line. And there are plot points all along the way where we can look at and say, yes, we were there. We did that. We preserved that. We made that. And because we have done and are doing, we will do again. So our young people, we're depending on you to carry on that legacy. That's what legacy is. Legacy doesn't mean us in the past. Legacy means us, the past, you, the future. Well, Michelle, as always, whenever we sit down and talk, we always have lots of laughs. And you know what? The other L word is there's always some learning going on. So I appreciate you so much for taking your time to share with us today on a Legacy of Our African-American Lives podcast. I hope that the adults who are listening or the children who are listening, they all continue to connect those dots because that is our responsibility. So again, I thank you and I wish you well. Thank you listeners for joining us.